Hello, uh, welcome to the Bad Vibes Club podcast. This is uh, me, Matt, Matthew, Matty, Big M. No one calls me that. This is just a quick one because Beth's going to do the introduction proper. But I just wanted to say that this is the last podcast for a while. I haven't got any more in the bank and we have done the ones that we're doing for this this kind of program, this bit of the funded program. And just wanted to say thanks. Just wanted to say thanks to all the interviewees. You were all brilliant people to talk to and I've learned so much. And thanks to everyone who's got in touch and been so kind about the podcast. It's like, yeah, I've had kind of overwhelming response. So I just wanted to say thank you. And at the moment, we're still running our events at Flat Time House. Check their website or our website, badvibesclub.co.uk for all the details. Hope to see you at one of those events. And otherwise, yeah, you'll know we when we've got a new podcast because it'll appear in your feed and in your ears. Okay, over to Beth, uh, who's interviewing Chloe Cooper. Chloe Cooper is an artist who also works uh, in education. She has a lot of work which I would describe as activism. Um, she's a bit interested in sex education and sex re-education right now. And she joins us in the studio today to talk about that and a recent performance that took place at Battersea Arts Centre which was called Internal Scratch and was very fun. Um, so I thought it'd be a nice place to start uh, talking about the project that you run with Jenny Moore and Phoebe Davis uh, which is called Bedfellows mm-hmm. and that's the sex re-education project um, and I thought you could maybe say how that got going so how you got together and sure. what you've been trying to do with it. Sure thanks Beth thanks for having me on. Um, so I guess Maybe I'll just talk a little bit about what it is first and then kind of like how it got going because it's really different for all of us, like Mm. our kind of intentions and our needs at the time and our desires for what we wanted and like where we want it to go. Um, So I guess, yeah, we're talking about it slightly differently now, but we did used to talk about Bedfellows as a kind of hot-blooded research project um, to resist the like heterosexist kind of cis-dominated sex education we receive every day. And that's why we call it uh, sex re-education projects because we want to acknowledge that actually I know we I know often we say um, that we don't get sex education and we're often then talking about that we don't receive there's kind of no provision for it in schools but what we're trying to say is that actually we do receive sex ed all the time from our families and our friends and from school a bit and from the government and from yeah TVs and films and music and stuff and all of this is kind of telling us like how we should be doing sex, who we should be doing sex with, and like, what should turn us on. And we're, yeah, we kind of wanted to spend some time resisting that a bit and like having, and like trying to, I guess, come together to just like chat and work out what we, I don't know, how we kind of relate to our own sexualities and gender identities and how we could kind of verbalize that and also illustrate that so trying to think about creating alternative visual imagery as well um and i think we started it in like i think the end of 2013 or the beginning of 2014 so about four years ago and for me it was very much i had kind of had this moment where i was like what something needs to happen and it was i work at the british museum and I work in lots of different museums and galleries as an artist and as an educator. And there was an exhibition of Japanese Shunga, which uh, which is literally translated as spring pictures, I think. And it's about, it's erotic imagery. And the springness is about these kind of like awakened kind of uh, 
senses and feelings and engorged kind of parts of bodies. And um, they were mostly woodblock prints that were made uh, for about 300 years, from 1600s to like 18-something, um, during the Edo period. And yeah, this exhibition seemed like a great idea to be able to talk to y the young people that do visit the British Museum as part of secondary school visits about erotic imagery and about pornography. Because we know that whenever we want to know anything, we Google it, right? And it makes total sense that as a person who wants to know about sex, like I Google it. And as a person who wants to know about like how to do sex and stuff, I watch pornography. And we know that young people do as well. And we know that old people do. And we know that all people do. We do believe that sex education is lifelong and it's complicated. Um, but this exhibition, this Shunger exhibition at the British Museum was closed to anybody under 16. So you weren't able to go and see it. And I'm sure the museum obviously has the right to decide who is and who is not allowed in its exhibitions. I'm sure there was a lot of, um, you know, like legal kind of wranglings and stuff. And maybe that decision was made in, a, in maybe they didn't really didn't want to do that, but they had to in the end. But it just made me realise as an artist working in these contexts that, ah, I've got a like a yeah like a political I don't know if it's a responsibility but like I make political work and that's something that's really important in my life and that actually like oh, I do not need to be in those museums talking about Picasso or whatever or like being like oh look here's how you draw circles and stuff even though that stuff's really important but actually other artists can do that so much better because I'm not that good at drawing and I don't really know that much about art history so actually I may as well talk about <coughs> stuff that excites me and I may as well I guess like not even just talk about it but kind of like bringing my skills of opening up opening up conversations or like trying to come up with like engagement strategies around things that are tricky to talk about like namely sexual politics and sex yeah so how did you when you met with jenny and phoebe was the idea that you had this kind of you'd write manifesto together or you had this idea that you wanted to go and talk particularly to young people to start with how did that kind of come together yeah i mean and it's because and we were at a at, at an opening and Phoebe was there and Jenny was there and I was there. And I think like Phoebe was saying, oh yeah, she was saying this thing about seeing somebody watch, like she was in a pub and somebody was watching pornography on their phone and like the way that it made her feel. I, and then I was like talking about this at the British Museum and then Jenny was talking about how she felt as well. And Jenny says this great stuff about like, we were fucked off, we wanted to fuck things up and we want to fuck better. It, it's just like so wicked and about like, being tired and angry about actually Jenny wrote this on behalf of Bedfellows for this interview we we're doing but I think it sums up yeah tired and angry about how little agency we felt over our bodies our sex our relationships and like our world and that we wanted to understand it better and I think that it is really we were all coming from different perspectives and we were all bringing our kind of different um, experiences as well and so yeah I think we like immediately understood that we're all like 30 years old. So sex ed can't only be for young people. Mm. So I don't think that was our initial aim. It could have been, I kind of forgotten now. But yeah, we wrote a few manifesto after a while because that seemed really important to be able to tell people what we were doing. And actually, actually it wasn't about telling people what we were doing. It was about telling, it was like our demands basically. It was our demands of what sex education should be as in it should be queer, it should be feminist, it should be intersectional. Um, yeah. 
and about normativity. That was really important for us in our Who Manifesto, talking about how normativity is a myth. Um, yeah, and often now we talk about having a wide spectrum. So we want to kind of acknowledge the wide spectrum and make kind of representative sex education for all of our genders, all of our bodies, all of our desires. Yeah. Hmm. And I think, just going back to sugar, even though like most of the sugar, there are representations of same-sex desire in the sugar, but most of it is between um, heterosexual couples. But there's a lot of mutual, des- there's a lot of like mutual pleasure going on, and I think like that was something that just seems so far apart from the mainstream pornography that we have now, which is so much about pleasure being reserved for those of us with penises pleasure being kind of reserved maybe in this kind of weird like eroticism of inequality and like an eroticism of violence and obviously I think like kink and BDSM when practiced um, uh, as it's meant to be um, is is great sex uh, because it's consensual and I think that's really important whenever uh, we're educating as well is to just make it clear that like you can be coming from a sex positive perspective and that means like it includes everything that is consensual but the consent has to be there yeah it's a good one <laughs> <laughs> totally forgotten what your question is no but no yeah, i think yeah that's why it. we've gone with it uh, i just every time i hear the we um last night me and chloe were both at um a charismatic megafauna gig and they finished their amazing set launching their new album semi-regular with um an ode a beautiful uh ballad of affection uh about the female ejaculate but also for everyone who ejaculates and mm-hmm. encouraging that to be done. So, it's a good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we could go, we could kind of loop back. So, um, you talked about the British Museum and your work with them. Um, have you um, been able to discuss sex education in the way you wanted with the British Museum? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really have actually. Yeah, that's been really, yeah, like a great kind of exercise in getting to know people you work with better and like not assuming that you know what they're going to be interested in and what they're not so always talk to your line managers that's the lesson that I've got from those (laughs) so I went and spoke to my line manager and said look I'm an artist on this program you want me because I'm an artist and actually this is what I need to do like can we do this together and she Melanie Rose said yes we must do this. This is something that's really important to me as well. And I think there does have to be a kind of fusion. We talk about it a lot in Bedfellows about uh, the personal, the political and the professional. And it kind of ticks, yeah, all three of those for her. And it, like, it ticks it for me definitely as well. Um, and she, yeah, went about straight away talking to Brooke, uh, who are a kind of sexual ad- sexual health advice advisory service and sex educators they've been going for years and years mm-hmm. they're, they're normally the one that's in, in like every town whenever you need like free condoms but also loads of advice and lo- loads of other barrier methods and methods of contraception but also other stuff as well um and who are the other people are oh, the sex education forum and they really helped us to develop workshops that we felt could be safe but also challenging as well so like brave space kind of situations because what we do at the British Museum is we we ran a a pilot with a school called Ackland Burley in Camden they're a brilliant school really progressive really exciting school 
and that was over four days just to kind of test out how to use objects and talk about pe- and talk about um, sexuality and gender and desire. But then we realised actually we didn't want to do this spe- these special projects because that project happened in LGBT History Month, obviously. Mm. Um, I'm saying obviously because like Black History Month, that is the time when we, and like Women's Hour, that's the time when we talk about those things as opposed to all the other times when we don't talk about them. Um, so it felt really important to actually be able to provide these workshops all the way through the academic year and for you to be able to book them like any other workshop. So they're just 90 minute workshops, just like anything else. So you can come and look at the Romans or whatever, or you can come and look at consent. You can come and look at the Egyptians or you can come and look at pornography. Um, And they take place on the gallery floor as well, which is risky. And it's something that we always talk to students about at the beginning. So we always come up with a group agreement. We kind of discuss how these conversations could happen safely and bravely in the space. And also acknowledge that we're in a public place. We're talking about sex. This is pretty rad. Like, please opt in and please opt out. And that's fine. We've had a couple of people opting out before. Um, But yeah, we do this with secondary audiences. So secondary school kids. And actually talking about consent with them, it's really fascinating because often they're at at school against their will. They do not want to be at the museum. They do not want to be doing any of these things. And then suddenly when you start saying that consent is such an important um, thing in in all of our lives, in every aspect of our life, not just in sex, it's something that really kind of strikes a chord with them. Um, Yeah, so we run, yeah, five different workshops on the different topics um, in sex ed. And yeah, it's exciting. We've had some repeat visitors. We've had some people like coming out, uh, which definitely like isn't the aim. Like it's not something, you know, nobody has to come out. Like it's not about outing yourself. You can if you want, you don't have to like. And I think that, I think that the teacher was just saying like, oh, hey, these kids who like, by giving them a history, by like saying like, hey, these objects through time, because our oldest object is 11,000 years old and we cross cultures as well. So just to know that like, yeah, you've got a history or like the the group that you identify with maybe like has a history is like something that I think the teacher was saying was like really empowering. I don't know, that's a, not sure about that word, but it was something that made those students, yeah, be able to say, oh yeah, I'm going to identify with this group. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. And you um, you did a performance recently uh, which looked particularly at um, the provision of sex education in secondary schools and also primary, I think, I got the impression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? I was looking back at it today and I'm not, in, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. It's so hard, isn't it? This yeah. government stuff. Yes. It's like boring and hard at the same time. It's like it was amazing, um, isn't it? It was like a, it was like a, a survey. Oh, yeah, yeah. To get opinions. Yeah from people who were involved in the the provision of this education yeah anyone also could submit a response mm-hmm. um and um the the performance that you did was called internal scratch yeah and it was a a presentation of a work in progress yeah. in a certain way but it was also a work yeah um and it was trying to answer some of those questions Mm-hmm. Uh, in within your practice, so through performance and uh, and particularly in this performance that you used um, props mm-hmm. as stand-ins. So I think they were kind of um, 
quite suggestive mm. um, and they stood in for anatomy and they also mm. pointed to things outside of the space we are in. Mm. Could you maybe talk about the um, object that you used from the British Museum collection? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so she's called Tara and she is in room 33 at the moment. She's just been put back on display after some concert. Oh, after the whole room um, was uh, rejigged and stuff, uh, which is really great to have her back because she's a really exciting object to be able to talk about with people. Um, she is a solid bronze figure. She's coated in gold, so she's really shiny and they've put all the lights on her, so she's really spotlit. She is about three quarter life sized. She's on a plinth, so she's a bit higher than you. And she's looking, so she's looking down a little bit at you. Um, and she is the personification of the compassion of Buddha. And she's from Sri Lanka originally. Uh, she was made 1200 years ago and she's a kind of nice representation of of that country's um, kind of relationship to religion or I guess how like she used to be a Hindu mother goddess but then she was kind of like yeah kind of became uh, yeah part of uh, Buddhist kind of visual traditions or not visual traditions but yeah traditions and like yeah in this role of personifying Buddha um, and she was found slash taken um, in the around the 1830s um, when a part of what is now Sri Lanka was annexed by the British. She ended up at the British Museum. She was immediately placed in the secretum, which is the secret erotic cupboard in the British Museum because there was no way she was allowed out on the floor because she was way too erotic because she's gold and shiny and she's I guess yeah you can see her breasts she's got breasts she hasn't got any clothes on top of them she's yeah yeah um she's wearing this kind of ankle length sarong I guess um and she wasn't alone in that cupboard there were other objects as well but there was this particular ooh I might find it. I'm going to rustle some papers, like more than I need to. But in 1857, yeah, there was these obscenity laws known as the Obscene Publications Act. Um, but they governed... Oh, yeah, so it was... She was seen as being able to deprave and corrupt, basically. So that's how they kind of um, validated putting her in this cupboard and not, not allowing people to see her. So in your performance, you yes. use her as a as a kind of object to draw attention to maybe, for me, I, I was thinking a bit about how we uh, talk in public about um, sex and sexuality, but maybe there were different reasons that you brought her in that you'd maybe want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, specifically, I think it's interesting this, because she's from this religious tradition I'm just reading this bit. That has no difficulty in combining divinity and sensuality. And I think that's definitely, I think like myself coming from like a Christian tradition, I guess, like a kind of CEV kind of background. But, but that very much not being my relationship with religion, like thinking that 
definitely I definitely had this idea that yeah sex is like a bad sinful thing outside of marriage um outside of like yeah outside of God's union kind of thing um but in this in the performance um so I was at the British Museum and me and my line manager and some other artists were were looking at Tara and we were talking about um how we could um kind of talk about her with students and this visitor he had a rucksack on and he came up to Tara and he tweaked her nipple which is like well yeah which is what it is I mean it's obviously like really disrespectful and really annoying um so I kind of wanted to I just I just thought like oh my god that's that's amazing isn't it what like I can't really actually yeah and I can't actually articulate how that makes me feel so I thought um I'll use it in a performance because um I mean obviously at the time we we were like don't do that um but as well but then kind of I guess like Ellie Sikorsky does this great work called comebacks I thought of later and it, and it is that thing of like, oh, God, that was like a learning moment. And yet I failed to teach, to like, you know, to engage you in a learning moment, visitor. I just let you do that. And then I just chastised you. So I thought, let's bring it into the performance. And I wanted to use that situation as a way to illustrate um, question three from the consultation about sex, about sex and relationships education in schools. And question three was about um, online relationships. And it seems really clear that there's a bit of a moral panic, uh, in my opinion, around um, what's happening online, when actually, like, it's the same as what's happening offline. And I think I just kind of wanted to draw parallels between those two things, because I think that, yeah, there's the same level of of damaging violent relationships offline as there is online. Um, and I'm not saying that like there's a hierarchy and that one is less damaging than the other. I'm just saying that I just want what I wanted to do here was to say, wow, there's new technology. There's like a new future, but things haven't changed. Maybe I could read out a bit. I've got a bit of the script. It might help. OK, yeah. So... I hate it when the future's the same as the past, only shinier. When so much work is done to enable people to seamlessly transfer their hate skills to a new platform. There's no glitch in the upload, no compatibility error, no connection failure, no support issues. The old system and the new are perfectly synced. Yeah, so it's basically about that, if that yeah, makes sense. It does. Um, also, there's that um, during Internal Scratch, there was also uh, an interaction with a uh, pencil as what I would consider a potentially phallic object, mm -hmm. uh, which was um, something that we did to ourselves. I, d I think that's a really strange way to explain it. But um, the, the objects that you brought in were, you referred to an object within the British Museum and mm -hmm. you brought it to us. And that made a lot of sense with the with the conversation around the online, mm -hmm. things that we could refer mm. to, things that we can Google if we don't know what something looks like. Mm. Uh, the pencil was more of a kind of physical experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a kind of, I, and it, it was reminiscent very much for me of when I did sex education, it was called sex education and not 
relationship and sex education. Yeah. And it was not about relationships. It was about putting condoms on things. <laughs> uh, and it was really, for me, it was almost quite nostalgic. I didn't do anything with a pencil when I was at school, but we had that moment where we looked at condoms and we looked at how to put them on. Um, I think that the area of the country that I'm from was at the time really um, particularly high for STI um, um, within the public. Uh, the population mm -hmm. um, really high uh, rate of infection mm -hmm. and really high teen pregnancy mm -hmm. and the most important thing to do at that time was to make sure that we could use a condom mm. and what you did in the performance by giving each of us a pencil mm -hmm. was also to think um, for me it was about thinking a little bit differently about that interaction because what I knew from my education was very basically how to put a condom on I think it might have been a banana and then you should make sure that the guy had condoms and you had condoms and never like you it wasn't really made clear that your role might be to uh put the condom on it was it was it would be in in a heterosexual encounter mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um you know you could have a go on the banana but the the guy would know how to do it <laughs> really so there was a sort of um you said you weren't really sure about the term empowerment earlier. And oh, yeah. I think I've got a lot of confusion about that term as well. But I do think um, there's a lot of... Uh, I think more important should be placed on um, understanding tools that you're giving people. Mm. So not handing them an object and saying, this will become important at mm. the right time. Mm -hmm. But explaining why and what for and the information that you need to know mm. and if we're talking about contraception, that there are multiple forms of contraception. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing I really liked about the performance was we also thought about the notion of um, penetration and penetration not being in the way that I feel like my sexual education framed the sexual act. It was heterosexual and it was something that happened to the female partner. Mm. It was something that was done rather than it was something that was uh, necessarily mutual or in any way could be sort of initiated by the woman, mm. in, as I understood it. Mm -hmm. um, could you explain why you use the pencils and how? Yeah, it, I wanted to use the pencils because I read this brilliant article called On Seclusion in Mask Magazine by Binny Adams-Chak. And in the article... Binny kind of um, suggests a new term and I'm really excited about making up new words and stuff and like new vocabulary because it's, it's again it feels like a tool it feels like um, a way of trying something new and seclusion is kind of in, in the article is suggested as an antonym to penetration so it's about the same act but from the other perspective so penetration it often feels like it places certain body parts in the role of active and therefore the bodies that are <laughs> connected to those body parts and then other body parts in pass as passive so we've got the penis the dildo the fingers maybe a tongue a bit but tongues can kind of move a bit more so they're a bit more tricky as the active and then we've got anuses vaginas hands mouths hand hand as well is a bit mm, um but as the as the passive and Binny's saying that this is something that's really damaging across heteronormative relationships and also within queer relationships as well because it's kind of in... There's this just idea of 
domination and that actually and the and to get penetrated is to get fucked and to get fucked is to be I don't know disempowered is to is to get fucked and I wanted to see if we could change the way we related to this kind of finger penis dildo stand-in of the pencil with our hand which was maybe a stand-in for an anus or a vagina or a mouth so that's what I asked us to do and before that point um, I'd shown us we'd watched this kind of strange I think it's like two or three minutes but it's like this kind of futuristic it's like they're like these two tones they go on for way too long it's my what it's my new attempts it's like my new garage band attempts and it's these two it's two hands drawing simultaneously um something that goes out and something that goes in so that's not i haven't actually thought about describing two bodily parts as that before and i'm not sure that's i'm happy with that but there maybe you can help me beth because you were there as well you might be able to think of a way to kind of like say what it was so maybe like, like intersected yeah. as well yeah there was an overlap um yeah. which got me thinking about things like you say going in and out but it wasn't necessarily that they went in and out they were more like um uh like sound waves kind mm. of crossing over each other um, but then with the hand, there was a very, like, the hand was very stiff in the holding. Ah. So there was a kind of, there was a tension mm. and also maybe, like, an attraction to mm. cross over. That is what I thought it looked like. Oh, that's exciting. I kind of hadn't, like, oh, yeah, I like that idea of a kind of, like, uh, like a muscle kind of, like... Maybe it's tension. that noise as well, that, that particular that's noise. Bang! Yeah. What, did that make you tense? I think it made me think that the action was tense because it was happening mm. within that space um, and it's a, it's a noise that kind of alerts. It was a kind mm. of, rather than a kind of calming or passive noise. Mm. Yeah, I see. And both hands were in motion, so there was two active yes. parts. yes. And they were kind of, and not, and not one part was defined by the other. It was like they were kind of simultaneously kind of creating each other. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that was the kind of hope. And I think that, so after watching that, you took a pencil from me and then I asked you to place it between your legs until we like found a new way to relate to it. And I think you placed yours underneath, in your armpit, was it? Yeah. Yeah, that was another choice that like eventually kind of was offered. Or, and you could also put it in your knee pit or in your mouth. And then I asked for you to try to push your hand onto the pencil as opposed to pushing your pencil into your hand. And how did you find that there? I, I struggled with it. And during the recording of the crit afterwards, I said that it made me sound very bad at sex. And I, I'm going to own that. I'm not very good at sex, according to the pencil test. <laughs> yeah. I mean, specifically, I've got it written... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it written down here. You say something like, oh, how can I put my 
my armpit into my into my it's something about like pushing my armpit into my hand yeah it was really a struggle of like physical understanding of my own body yeah a bit of a flat line there was uh i was i was my armpit is passive apparently it could be it could be a, 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 a sort of naturally submissive part of my body <laughs> But it was it was hard to it was it was the thing of um, thinking about the exercise as as a kind of discussion about sex and sexuality and how we relate to each other and mm. and um, sex education. But it was also thinking about physically trying to enact something that had a because of that had this kind of metaphorical. Uh, so we were a little bit giddy. We were a little mm. bit. We were finding it funny because we were, mm. you know, like the, we literally said, "Should it be rubber end up with the pencil?" Oh yeah. Because I did mine spiky end first, and I was like, "This is going to be painful." And then you were like, "No, no, rubber end." And there was that kind of without through that whole performance because there were several, well, there were three or four objects that we kind of interacted with or you presented to us, mm. and in each of them there was an element where there was a euphemism. Mm. Or there was a, it was a stand-in, as you say, for mm. these these phallic objects. Mm. So I think we were there was I think different people would interpret it differently and feel differently about it. But there was an element where we were being asked to sort of be at least in some way publicly acknowledging of our position sexually mm. or how we understand or how what we know about sex, which is always I think quite a vulnerable mm. position to put people in mm. uh, in the way that I think there's a lot of uh, again, I'm thinking about schools because that was my experience of sex education. But there was a, there was a, there was a need to sort of suggest that you already knew mm, mm. when you ha- when you by the time you received the sex education, mm. you needed to be like, of course, I already know, so I don't need to watch this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also a kind of pressure on particularly, I think, people who identified as uh, as women or, or young girls to also say that they hadn't. Yeah. Had that yeah. you you weren't you were supposed to know everything about it but not have had it. Mm. I think that was the kind of peer mm. pressure within the group I was part of. Mm. Um, and that sort of followed me through as well through different years. So I remember even at university, someone telling me that uh, maybe I was hanging out with too many guys, uh, not even necessarily in a kind of, I was dating people, but there was a sort of impression I got that, you know, people will think things about you. And I was sort of, I felt like it came from that moment of being 15 or 16 and needing to, to know so much and 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 put on this front like we were completely capable mm. but haven't not had it because you didn't want to be seen as something like a slut mm. um so thinking about the pencil and and what we needed to demonstrate about how we understood the setup we needed to understand that it was about penetration and what the pencil stood for while also maintaining that it was an innocent act that we were mm. engaging in because mm. we were in an education situation, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that in, I'm just writing innocence down because, yeah, that makes me query that approach. Yeah, yeah, because I know that we spoke quite a lot about like awkward. There was a that some of the questions in the kind of criti- crit mm. feedback bit afterwards were about like, oh, did you want us to feel awkward? Yeah, and I remember not really being able to answer that very well because ah. Actually, yeah, I remember somebody else said, because uh, because it's this whole like suggestive thing, and that's so weird. Like I would never do that in a sex education setting, yeah, because it's about being explicit, and that's the point. And so I kind of didn't like that I'd done that in my practice. Like I didn't like that I, 
kind of beating around the bush because ah but it's tricky because that whole stuff at Battersea Art Centre was about me trying to change or shift the focus of my practice away from being quite literal and kind of giving people a lesson on what the world could be like to trying to become more poetic or trying to kind of leave carve gaps where affect can grow and trying to practice this term that I've coined which I'm sure someone else has before but it struck a chord with me for some reason but responsible abstraction so this idea of not being so literal of not just of like of like trying to diversify the vibes that I can evoke so that people can do their own learning that's important to them at that time in their minds as opposed to just letting them know what I'm where I'm at I'm not keen on innocence. No. Why not? Mm. What do you think? Why? Do, can you tell me a bit more about how you relate to innocence? I guess innocence um, for me is. Yeah. I, get, I guess I I I think a lot about um, the notion of uh, sex positivity mm. as something that I found out about maybe at a stage uh, later than it would have been incredibly helpful. Um, I find it a little bit strange to sort of think retrospectively, oh, you know, it, you, you shouldn't have too many regrets about these things. You come to ideas sometimes just because you you join a community where mm. that's a norm mm. and before it wasn't. Mm. But I think um, as an experience of growing up as a young person in this country with uh, the sex education that was set up at the time mm. and also kind of, uh, as you discussed earlier, like the other ways where we find out about sex there was uh, a notion that you should have an innocence where you were protected from seeing sex. Mm. So, you you know, there's a watershed. There are things that are mm. appropriate for children. Um, but then there are loads of issues around that. Like um, the... Uh, I remember I've, I've, I have this really strong memory when I was about 16, thinking that it was ridiculous that the age of consent was 16. Because, of course, I knew what I wanted by then. I was 16, I knew everything. So why couldn't, why wasn't it 14? Why wasn't it 15? Mm. And then I remember a point when I was about 19, realizing that it's 16 to protect people, potentially, like that's that's a way you can you can think about that law. It's, a, it's designed to protect people who aren't ready yet or people who might be coerced or to kind of just set a legal limit. Mm. And it's about the whole public it's the whole of the country and it's not about you as an individual and you know I didn't know everything when I was 16 and I wasn't sex positive and I I didn't understand so much about consent and Mm. a lot of the things that I think are really important in discussing sex in terms of relationships Mm. that just I felt was missing um and I didn't get from other sources like tv and media and, uh, you know, it's so important. I think for me, when I was that age, it was so important for me to be part of a peer group. Um, and I've always been quite awkward. I've not been someone that necessarily has to do everything like everyone else. But I was one of those p- people who was like alternative. So I did everything like the alternative people. And a part of that was, you know, still having awful relationships with people mm-hmm. where it was about not understanding what, uh, consent was or supportive mm. relationships or uh, the role of the woman in a heteronormative relationship mm. 
being anything but passive mm. and I think that for me is kind of bundled up in that idea of innocence it's the idea that uh, there's an element of uh, protecting people there's an element of um, kind of ignoring or removing the sexual mm. um, because there's a safe space where sex doesn't exist in an ideal world um, mm. in the same way as uh, what is that film uh, there's a film called Legend which is like a fairy story with uh, Ridley Scott directing and there's a giant red devil uh, played by Tim Curry it's brilliant if you haven't seen it but um, it. there's a, a young woman in it who's a virgin who um, I think she is punished um, I think she wants to touch a unicorn and because she touch, she defiles the unicorn I think she brings about a kind of apocalypse or crisis um, and it's that notion that uh women acting on their desires can be world destroying mm. that I think is kind mm. of like an implicit part of a lot of narratives mm. about virginity mm-hmm. um, which maybe is western more so than mm. in other cultures mm-hmm. but I don't feel like I know enough about mm. necessarily all of the cultures to say mm-hmm. that so sweepingly but mm-hmm. I did think at the time you know there's so many where um there were those those few kind of women in you know young women in in stories in Hollywood that you'd cling to, like the labyrinth where the woman goes and like saves her little brother and you know has like a sexy cool flirt with like David Bowie but then is just like no I'm taking my little brother and going home. Cool. Uh, and then there's so many where you're just like well that that passive woman has uh, you know failed. Uh, by losing her virginity or she's punished for it um, you see women stabbed to pieces because they've had sex and they're in a, in a teen slasher film so mm. that understanding of innocence for me is all kind of tied up in that moment between maybe being you know you know like becoming pubescent to the point mm. where I was an adult in some sense by being 18 or 19 mm. and having to figure out more things by myself anyway mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for telling me a bit more about that because I am really, yeah, I'm really interested in that. My friend told me she's like a year one or a reception teacher, and she says that when she, uh, like, when the kids kind of put their blankets over because I think they have naps or something because they're really young, and she starts reading them a story, she'll be reading the story and she'll look up, and in this class of thirty at least two thirds of them will be like having a lovely little poke around like like touching their genitals Mm. and it feels really nice to well presumably for them and she'll at that moment she'll that will be the moment where she'll say oh okay everyone I can see that people are touching their well I don't know exactly what she says but I think the kind of lesson is ah okay you're touching yourself in that area of your body it feels nice but in our society we don't do that in public necessarily unless we've made a decision to do oh, I don't know see I'm trying to like yeah like complicate it but I'm, and I'm sure she probably doesn't isn't able to do that in the setting that she's working maybe but but yeah there but before I kind of heard that and before I kind of started thinking about this stuff, there is this kind of suggestion there or, or I'd understood that kids that kids who are in year one would not have a like sexual relationship with their. But I mean, I don't know if they are having if they are consciously having that relationship. I don't know enough about this. I want to learn more about it. 
But yeah, I think it kind of comes into my idea of, of innocent children and them not having that, those, not having those urges. Oh. But when you talk about the idea of lifelong sex yes. re-education, yeah. also we pick up some ideas that maybe aren't right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All of the time. Yeah. Um, and thinking about the different stages at which you kind of can introduce information or challenge accepted norms. Mm -hmm. um, that seems really exciting and powerful mm. to me. And I do wonder about the potential of kind of abstracting because there's also this idea that people aren't ready to receive education once they know something about something. I know, but then how can they be like, then they haven't given their informed consent in a way. Yeah, like true. I want them to be able to opt in, to be able to hear like all the things we might be talking, or we'll be covering mm. and then say, yeah. And obviously there's going to be loads of barriers to participation that they're not going to be able to say. So lots of, so maybe people won't be able to say, yes, I'm opting into that because of maybe some of the uh, kind of gender related things yeah. that you spoke about earlier. I just as an example of one barrier. But I, I'm really excited by the potential of um, education taking different forms that maybe in some senses, you know, because your practice crosses working explicitly as an educator, mm. but also as an artist. And with the Bedfellows, I think mm. there was a really great combination of uh, making materials, mm. being um, people yourselves that were questioning mm. uh, at, at a stage where maybe the assumption uh, is that you would know. Mm, yeah. So questioning at later stages, you, you'd become you'd become role models in that sense mm. of the idea that you can re-educate yourself or, you know, just increase the amount of education. Um, but I wonder about this potential around abstraction because mm. as an artist, mm. you have a performance practice. Mm. And um, the thing about uh, scripts and scripting, I think, is very powerful because you have um, something you want to say. You have a voice mm. when you perform that can be very funny and charming and thought-provoking, can, can kind of challenge. So I feel like the things that I saw kind of seeded in internal scratch, even if um, there's a kind of complication around using stand-ins uh, and this abstraction, mm. the notion of responsible abstraction is that we also go, well, we do know what we're talking about. Mm. I'm trying to work out how... Because it feels like it was quite useful for me because it made me who often will just sort of, you know, I don't necessarily like to assume that I know... Again, I'm not 16 pretending I know everything about it, but I do probably do a bit of surreptitious Googling rather than going to somebody, what on earth do you mean by that? Yeah. Because I don't know what you've... What yeah. are you describing there? How does... What do those letters stand for? Mm. Uh, one of my favourite memes at the moment is... Um, it's I'm really into BDSM and it's beautiful dogs surrounding me. Oh yeah, and so I'm like I love that so much. <laughs> um, also, I I think at one stage someone invited me to be part of something like a feminist group they'd kind of imagined, which was about uh, women performing BDSM to make money for their creative practice. And I was like, I just I'm not interested in it. And I think BDSM. In a lot of ways, I think there was a conflation between the notion of uh, sex work and BDSM, and, and BDSM is practiced by people who, you know, mutually enjoy that, and the idea mm -hmm. that necessarily because there are groups of people who might want to pay money for it, that they can be, you know, taken advantage of. And I was like, there's a lot of levels there where I don't think this would be a project I'd want to be part of. 
Uh, and for me saying that, I think the perception was that I was very prudish because I didn't mm. want to participate in a project mm. that was very, you know, it was it was so funny how we were going to make money. Mm. And I was like, well, I think uh, people's sexual preferences and and sex work and things like that are actually very complicated. And uh, I don't think that I've got a particular interest in BDSM, but also I kind of... I'm confused about the objectives of the project and kind of a, a rich understanding of sexuality and relationships. Mm, mm. Uh, so that conflict there was kind of confusing. Um, that's not a good question, but ah, well, <laughs> it's a, it's a start. It's a start of saying lots of different things. Yeah, I mean, I was so uh, blown away by the efforts of the women's march that we both mm, attended mm. on the eighth. On International Women's Day. Oh, the strike. The strike. The mm-hmm. uh, women's strike, not the march, yeah. Um, but we did march a little bit. Yeah, true. We did. Um, yeah. And the integration of um, intersectionality, so saying that if it's not a women's strike that is um, anti-racist, it's not worth doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the integration of trans issues, mm-hmm. so if, it's not a trans, if there's no trans liberation, there's no feminist liberation. Uh, and the integration of uh, the sex workers march on the same day as the strike. There were lots and lots of ways in which I felt like uh, I was proud to be, you know, to attend that event um, and to tell people about it and to try and take on some of the challenges that were proffered by the group that organised it about things you could do in your daily life just by sharing that information and and saying why you wanted to be involved in it. Um, And it made me think a lot about how there's a section in my life where I feel like people really engage with those ideas and maybe want to have conversations with them about them and maybe don't agree with every part of that but would you know find the whole thing really interesting and people who don't want to talk about it and that's not part of their lives and they don't know anyone say for example that's trans or has a feminist migrant issue because you know they're they're struggling with um their ability to stay in this country or their ability to find uh, you know, paid properly for the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it all feels very knotted together for me as all feminist issues and all about relationships mm. um, and, you know, sex education being about the fact that there are different sexualities and approaches to gender. And for other people, I think that there's a very narrow understanding of what needs to be told to children in schools and that's mm. the end, mm. which is why I found the the idea of using a performance and particularly a performance which was unfinished to talk about a government survey really engaging yeah I think there's what's that thing that people say about like oh you think it's a choice to engage in politics if like you're in you intersect with all these privileges and like that's how it could ever be a choice to you because if you're if you don't necessarily if you're not the most privileged person then actually like you have no choice but to engage with politics because politics is going to engage with you in like a in not a great way in not a way that's going to be um uh yeah pleasurable for you um yeah oh yeah um i think that in terms of yeah i've Oh, there's so much stuff to say. Oh, my God. Um, Yes, I think... I should have been writing things down when I was listening to you then. I think um, we... 
do oh, I'm just going to say loads of little things um, I think yeah we do definitely place a lot of value that needs to that kind of goes unspoken and is assumed on people's preferences and sexual preferences um, I'm trying to do work, I'm trying to make some work about that as, at the moment about like menus and food and stuff because I think like we I just want to kind of try and draw some parallels um, yeah I think that uh, in terms of yeah intersectional liberation that's absolutely um yeah necessary and i think yeah i totally agree i think women's strike um articulated that really well i think that ah oh, there's a show opening tomorrow at um which is tomorrow being the night the 20th of april at enclave um by uh artworks made by sex workers um i'm gonna go i'm excited to see it uh I think other things are in terms of educational policy and kind of discrimination this we're in a really exciting place because because Justin Greening managing to get eventually compulsory sex and relationships education through on the 1st of March last year like through the Children and Social Work Act I think it was um has meant that I mean that's what this whole draft consultation sorry consultation was about for the public and it was just for educators students and parents students up to 19 years old but it just means that those regulations need to be rewritten and they have to and they and actually it's not something that the government's going to be able to just say oh it's just something that we wrote in 2000 which is 18 years ago which is when section 28 still applied so that was the um the kind of ruling that did not allow the promotion of homosexuality in schools, which kind of did mean that teachers were not able to talk about this diversity of sexuality and gender identity, as you just said then. And actually, the teachers... I mean, and the, the worrying thing is, is that people who are teaching now are our generation. So they were therefore schooled during Section 28. So they received the sex education that we received. So actually, even though Section 28 was repealed in 2003, it's meant that n not a lot has really moved on because of, f of um, the guidelines staying the same. And I hope that this is, yeah, this, could, this is going to change it. Or this, like, re-looking at it. I mean, the scary thing is, is that we might get compulsory sex and relationships education which is going to be really exclusionary and its own and everyone's it just means that everyone has to learn about a really limited scope of sexuality which would be and relationship models which mm. would be even worse in a way I don't um yeah that is it's interesting when you say models because I do think one really important thing that I think filling in that form after going to your performance and thinking about the questions uh, and also seeing that um, one thing I think is really interesting is that I didn't realise there was this big community that forms around completing these government consultations that kind of give you um, text that has been developed by people yeah. who have been involved mm -hmm. that you can paste in and amend to mm -hmm. what you think. Yeah, That was really um, uh, important for me because yeah. it meant that Although I'd spent, you know, an afternoon with you thinking about it, I had less information than, say, someone who was teaching yeah. or who had spent a lot of time 
campaigning yeah. or um, and put them engaged with that way. And I felt like actually it made it made it possible for me to articulate through the text that they had written mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things that I thought were important mm-hmm. as well or in addition to or yeah. instead of yeah yeah it gave me something because I think those those kind of portals those those big boxes where Oof. you have a word count limit they feel um for a start they feel against people who have different approaches to you know like if you have dyslexia if you have um some special educational needs of any sort they are boxes in space that you must fill and I think that's quite um challenging for people with different um approaches to these things even just like the color of the of the form the format and the, the number of words in the question almost matches the amount of words you're allowed <laughs> to respond with uh so I guess my point was that having uh models of sex positive relationship positive you know there are multiple ways that you can have relationships Mm. that aren't necessarily the two or three formats that i've seen before in life or on uh in culture Mm. that that in itself could be huge even just acknowledging that those different approaches exist as a starting point Mm. for you know trying to imagine back to 14 year old me i'm just like that would have blown my mind in a way and you know I, it's not like I lived in a unliberal area I definitely had a friend who had two mums and my parents were very open about discussing these things and I had two parents that were you know they've they've had one major partner in their life um, to date but you know for 30 years mm-hmm. um, and they never got married so I had an instant kind of understanding that I was different to what I was being told was C of E correct because the technical term for a child born out of wedlock is a bastard so you know you you start to see small holes in what's mm, happening mm. because you see lived experience versus mm. the ideal model mm-hmm. and then when you know that there are multiple models you start to realize that you have agency in a way i think you don't before that point yeah. it's it's like the way that i think um Sometimes you talk to people and they say, oh, well, the government needs to have austerity because we're in deficit. And then you meet someone who goes, well, you don't need to work. Work is, you know, a moral good. You don't need to do jobs that don't need to be done. And you go, what? And it's a really exciting moment where you kind of see the world open up a little bit. Mm. And I think that could be one of the most, in in terms of why I think the idea of re-education is exciting is the notion that we all can keep learning or there are better ways to educate. Yeah. So is it cool to hear that you say it's an exciting moment for this? Because I feel like you're much better informed about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, potentially, or otherwise, no. Yeah, I mean, all that relationship modelling—that's all stuff that should be included in the primary in the primary relationships curriculum. Because hmm. that's all. That's what lots of the kind of personal, social, health, and economic education. Um, what the curriculum is talking about is learning about how to relate to other people. Yeah, and the image—it's just about that. Di- it's just about that. These are the ways. Yeah, it's about that getting that diversity in. And that, yeah, there's so many Aye. implicit rules. I think even around like how you must present yourself mm. uh, that are part of primary through to secondary education about how you must perform the yeah. gender identity. Yeah. Um, 
within gender identity what the rules are and they are mm -hmm. there's so there's a million implicit rules mm. and often you only learn them when you break them yeah and you might not break them because of intention but because of other reasons but there are ways in which you can be kept in line and i think that the idea of compulsory education around something that's so fundamental for me it feels insane that it feels uh, not insane it feels um scary that could have gone so long without and the I can kind of feel like a conservative force in that idea conservative with a small and a big c mm. around not making that a formal mm. part of people's education mm. because it's about trying to maintain the notion that there is a way of doing mm. it mm -hmm. and it has this authority behind mm -hmm. it because it is the way mm -hmm. um I guess I'd really love to just kind of, before we finish, mention mm. something about um, activism. Mm -hmm. uh, because I would say that within your practice, and particularly maybe with bedfellows, mm. uh, but also with your own practice, mm -hmm. there's an engagement with the idea of art as activism. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I don't know if you want to term it in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think I, yeah, I'm kind of, I really welcomed your question on that because from a kind of personal satisfaction point I've realized that I get a lot out of contributing to wider discussions contributing to campaigns contributing to social justice movements through my work so for example um, contributing a performance to a um, conference about self-care in an in an unequal art world which is something that um, Kerry Jeffries Jeffries and Sophie Chapman and Rosie Schweiker did like a, a year ago or a couple of years ago but just like being able to contribute through yeah being able to make yeah I guess like just making it for a reason I mean that's the stuff at Battersea I mean an internal scratch is when you just get a chance to practice to just like try out some work just with people that you invite as opposed to a scratch night which is for the public but for me like that like cool and stuff but I really wanted to like try to manifest some answers some like abstract answers to this form and and that I suppose was a political move and I guess it just yeah I just it's just got to it's selfish in a way but it's just got to feel like it it is part of something and it's there's a reason that's bigger than yeah individual artistic geniusness I suppose um and I think it's yeah, like dead important. I work, yeah, as you say, like a lot in educational settings. I think it's dead important that um, people kind of receive that message as well from to like add into their idea of what art can be, of what the function of art is or could be um, to diversify that a bit more. Um, and yeah, like every time I make a piece of work, I especially I think sometimes it's like a little bit easier to do than others um but I think I'm trying to make more of a conscious effort to do this now but it is a but I do I am trying to actually I always do this but like try to engage with like the power dynamics or the hierarchies that are going on in that place or with the people who've invited me um to kind of not make it not make a change because I think activism isn't like that you don't just do one performance and things change but I think you can you can offer something which is perhaps slightly different to what other people can offer um and I think yeah I've got quite a loud voice as a 
white, middle class, um, able-bodied, cisgendered um, woman working in museums and galleries. And I want to, on a zero hour, yeah, on like zero hours contracts, which is like the dodgy kind of precarious bit. So they can definitely um, terminate those at any point. But I do think that, yeah, there's, I want to acknowledge that and to use it and to use it. Great. Um, Should we we end there? I think maybe we should. Yeah, we're going to change, not the world, but we've changed something. Maybe change offered. Offered, yeah, offered, seeded. Unsettled, wiggled. Mm, Do you like seeded? Because it might grow. I'm not sure it'll grow. I think people forget, like, the day after, and that's fine. Or, like, maybe even, like, like, a minute after... But I don't know, but it's just that opportunity to, like, shuffle things. Mm. Maybe it's that. And maybe that opportunity to shuffle does only exist, like, whilst it's going. Yeah. And maybe there isn't that much of a shadow or, like, an after image. But then we use Google. I always think that, like, I will, the next day I'll be like, what was that word that I didn't understand? Or what was that thing that someone said? And I will look it up and be like, was that a thing? And that that means that there's some porousness to information. Mm. You can shut yourself off to loads of things, but if there's something that's been introduced that kind of stays, it kind of wiggles in your mind. There's like this thing that you're like, did someone say, you know... Uh, oh, like when I, have, when I looked up um, LGBTQI... Plus, uh-huh. and I was like, "What does the plus stand for?" Yeah. I need to know. And it was just that thing where it was like it was it was almost what I'd seen before. And I've sort of I feel like as I've understood more about sexuality, I've increased the number of letters that I recognise yeah. on that list. Yeah. And then I was like, "And a plus? <laughs> I need to look up what the plus is." And it was a, it was a moment of learning. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the message, isn't it? Keep learning. Add pluses to everything. Add pluses to everything. Yeah. And like, yeah, share. Share. I think like, yeah, all these people, everything we've just talked about, like, people have been saying for years and years and years. Yeah. And it's just, the, and like, ah, uh, offering solidarity. I don't know. Like, just, I don't know. Just doing the bit, isn't it? I don't know. Do your bit. Do your bit. <laughs> I love that we keep trying to finish it. And then I'm like, mm, yeah. Maybe this is going to be the last word. But no, do your bit. Add pluses. Pluses. It's good. I'm gonna. I'm gonna definitely stop my timer. Um. Matt, Matt, cut it now. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to stop the record. Oh yeah, nor do I. Yeah, it's just gonna keep going, isn't it? Yeah. We so we gave options for endings there. Oh my god, there's so many <laughs> great options. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's really good to chat. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even like. I was gonna sing, um, sing "History of the World in a Hundred Objects." You could do like that a now. Theme tune. Okay. Do 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 It should be our jingle. <laughs> <laughs>